It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. So I am so happy to have as my guest today, former Congressman Peter King. You are all, I'm sure, very familiar with Peter King. He was a member of Congress from 1993, where his first election was a squeaker, and then won with comfortable margins and served until 2021. You may not know about Peter. He's a bit of a renaissance man. He's written novels. I just ordered Terrible Beauty on Amazon. I got it yesterday, so I can't wait to read it. And while Peter and I may not agree on all of the issues, I just want to say before I introduce you, Peter, on a personal level, I want to thank you for working so well with me when I was county executive. You were a Republican congressman. I was a Democratic county executive. But you were always accessible. You always gave me a warm welcome when I came to D.C. with my tin cup in hand. You helped me communicate with the Trump administration during COVID when that was really necessary. And that would have absolutely been a challenge if it weren't for your assistance. So I just want to thank you for that and welcome to Cut to the Chase. First of all, thanks for the kind words. Great to be here. I'm looking forward to doing this. And it was a privilege working with you. I never saw any sense of partisanship either way working with you. And you're right, COVID was a real struggle and you were really valiant during that. And it it was great working with you. So I guess my first question to you, since we're both former elected officials now, is do you, you know, there's been a lot of news popping, especially last week with the Supreme Court rulings on abortion, on guns. We have the Ukraine, you know, while it may have receded from the front pages, it's still a huge, huge problem and a huge issue. Inflation, supply chain issues, baby formula issues, whatever it is. Do you ever wake up in the morning and almost like a phantom limb feel like, wait a minute, I need to do something about this? Yeah, especially when it gets really out of hand and you really see the debate getting very bitter and you see some people make obvious mistakes. That can be on both sides. They're just saying something you know is wrong and that's becoming the theme of the day. You say, wait a minute, that's not what happened. That's uh, describing, comparing what's happening today to something that happened three or four years ago and the comparison they're making just doesn't work. And so you feel like jumping in for that. On the other hand, knowing that I do have you know, the rest of the day to do what I want makes it a little bit easier because I'm even though I'm retired. I'm, I'm doing a number of things. I can do it at my own pace. That makes a big difference. But no, I do miss being in, in the arena. And like I always thought that like on September 11th, Bill Clinton must have been going mad that day, knowing that there was absolutely nothing he could do. If it had been eight months before, he would have been on the phone with every world leader and with all the military leaders and all the police people. Instead, all he was was a spectator. So in many ways, even though I can talk to people and give advice. I'm, you know, I'm just a spectator. Right. Yeah. That's, I always joke, I, you know, I'm commenting from the cheap seats now, right. <laughs> which is easier, but it's also kind of nice too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you were, I don't mean to, to stroke, but you were absolutely a big deal in Congress. You were much more than just a local congressman. You were on national news all the time. You were the chair of the House Committee on Homeland Security. You served on financial services and the intelligence committees. You played a very big part in the Good Friday Agreement. But you also you know, maybe like all of us who've served in public service have had some controversies. Is there anything that's sort of out there that's repeated as conventional wisdom about you and about your term that's just not true, that drives you crazy when you hear it? 
Part of it could be is the one is, I would say, the hearings I did into Islamic radicalization, which was portrayed as being anti-Muslim. Actually, for instance, my first three witnesses, two of them were Muslims and one was a person whose son had converted to Islam and he was African-American. So, yeah, I would say that was very much distorted. I think we overcame it as, as it went along, but that was basically, they were doing riots, demonstrations in Times Square against me outside my office, and it was just routinely reported on television. Today was the second day of Congressman King's anti-Muslim hearings. And I said at every hearing, not being apologetic, but, you know, 99% of the Muslims in this country were, you know, very good, you know, hardworking Americans. In fact, without generalizing, great people have in a community. I mean, very little crime in Muslim-dominated areas. You know, where the Muslim community is very strong, you find very little, certainly very little family breakdowns. You have great education. But having said that, there was no doubt there was a radical element. And even if it's only one-tenth of one percent, I was calling on the Muslim community to be more proactive and reporting it. Now, listen, not everyone was going to report what was going on with the mafia or the Westies or anything else. I mean, that's something... And also, I mean, I remember when the, uh, you know, the mob was being investigated, the Italian mob, the FBI was infiltrating, you know, Italian-American clubs. I know with the Westies, which was an Irish-American group, I mean, every bar on the west side of Manhattan must have had an FBI person there as an undercover. Right. And to me, that, that was legitimate. You go where the crime is coming from or the incident could be coming from. So that's probably the one thing that I would say I, I wish could be rewritten. Now, I'm glad I did it, but it, it is frustrating. Even now when I, I see, like, if someone's doing, like, a quick definition of what I was in Congress. He worked on this, he worked on that, and he conducted anti-Muslim hearings. You know? Yeah, it's very frustrating. <laughs> I have the same experience sometimes where, what? that's not true, but then it gets repeated so much that everyone mm-hmm. just kind of, it becomes the boilerplate yeah. of, of your service, which, so thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, one <laughs> other thing that you took a very strong stand on is football players, et cetera, who kneel for the national anthem. So I'm going to give you my take on this. Sure. So I read the novel, the George Orwell novel, 1984, at a very impressionable age. I think I was about 12 or 13. And I don't know, it had such an impression on me that I am always very wary of groupthink. And I think you're like that, too. You haven't been afraid to break with your party, to criticize your colleagues who wouldn't support help for New York after 9-11, after Superstorm Sandy. And, you know, as a Long Islander, I always really appreciated that. I have experienced a little bit of blowback from my own party recently, actually. I was nominated by the governor for a state board, but the state senators, there was a few state senators that actually blocked the vote, so it never came to a vote because they were unhappy with what I said about bail reform early on. I may have been unkind in some of the things that I've said about President Biden. And so I got a little bit of a punishment, a little bit of blowback, and the, the vote never happened. So going back to your thing about kneeling, I completely understand why it would anger you that people would kneel for the national anthem because, you know, people have fought for our rights and it's disrespectful. However, a counter argument could be perhaps people have fought for people to express opinions that we might find odious or that we disagree with. What do you think about that? No, I think he had the right to do it. I just thought it was wrong for people to be somehow supporting him. Like, for instance, when he did, I remember the owner of the Jets said he was going to pay the fines of anyone who knelt during the national anthem because he respects everyone's right to free speech. I said, well, suppose they were giving the, you know, the Nazi salute during the national anthem. Would he also be willing to pay theirs? I was saying there's this double standard, that there are some causes or some crusades, if you want to call it, that 
the uh, mainstream media and mainstream America is willing to support, but others they're not. And I think that uh, Kaepernick was getting a free ride that way. And because, again, if, if they were coming out with something involving white supremacy or Nazism or anti-Semitism, they wouldn't be supporting it. That's all I would say. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. <clears throat> no, if he wants to do it, I, I would, you know, he has the absolute right to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So your father was a cop in New York City? Yeah, he was there over 30 years. He was lieutenant. He was the commanding officer for physical training down the police academy at the end. And among those he trained was Ray Kelly, who got the Outstanding Police Trainee Awards. When he wow. Was, uh, yeah. Wow, that's great. So another thing, I think you and I have talked <coughs> about this before. There is a lot of division in our country mm-hmm. these days, and it seems to have gotten worse. Things are starting to feel a little weird out there. But again, playing devil's advocate here, if you have seen the musical Hamilton, you saw really early on in our nation's, mm-hmm. just, you know, at the days of our nation's founding, people were fighting. They used the press to trash each other. They used sex scandals against rivals to slime them. They used all kinds of methods, petty and other to heap criticism well, on each other. Today. Everything is yeah, right. Everyone, everyone's so well behaved <laughs> now. So is it a little bit of a fantasy to think that there was a time? You know, I think the ideal is when Ronald Reagan, speaking of President Reagan, and Tip O'Neill would get together for a whiskey and sort it all out. But isn't this country in a way all about not agreeing, that we're allowed to disagree? And is it almost a fantasy, an unrealistic fantasy to think that somehow we're all going to get along and work it out? Yeah, there's always supposed to be a clash of ideas. I think what it is now, it seems like everything is being fought over and fought over in the most extreme terms. But no, even the thing with President Reagan and Speaker O'Neill is exaggerated a bit because I know people that work for Tip O'Neill and say that he never liked Ronald Reagan. That was just really? Go through. Yeah. There you go, see? And they played that up. But again, it did set a good tone. What it did do, I think, was that when they made an agreement on something, they could deliver their parties. Now, it doesn't matter what they agree on. Like, I remember when President Obama was the president, and uh, there was a, go- a government shutdown, and it was being threatened, and it even started. And so he and John Boehner, who was then the speaker, began having off-the-record discussions how they could bring this one in. And it, what they wanted to do was, I think the immediate crisis issue was the debt crisis, which in a way is a phony crisis, because you have to pay the debt. Right. The Republicans refusing to authorize it to put pressure on President Obama. So anyway, he and Boehner got together and they said, let's come up with a deal that's going to solve these issues, or at least you know, provide a cover for the next two or three years. And they agreed, basically, you know, Republicans always say they're not going to increase taxes. So that's our article of faith. What they would do is they would agree that tax cuts that were going to expire in six months would not be extended. So technically, we're not raising taxes, but we're allowing taxes to go up. Okay. It was a play on words, but that, yeah. was, that was agreed on by Boehner. And then... Uh, they could say it with a straight face. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, then it gets all lost in the translation. And then President Obama agreed that to make certain changes in the eligibility age for Social Security beginning in several years. And that was the agreement. They shook hands on it. By the time Boehner got back to his office and President Obama sat down in the Oval Office, it was all over conservative talk radio and liberal talk radio and the media about this deal. And they were accusing Obama of selling out and Boehner of selling out. And both of them denied there was ever a deal. That's how. Wow. Now, that wouldn't have happened in the time of uh, Reagan and uh, O'Neill. And I think then the party leaders had more control. Not that you want everyone marching lockstep, but it prevents a lot of cheap shots being taken. And that's what it was. You had Republicans who wanted to 
be more Republican than the Speaker running. I will never allow mm-hmm. taxes to go up one penny. And others who were talking about senior citizens dying on the streets if President Obama's suggestion regarding Social Security was gone. So is that, that type of thing, you have more of that now. I think it's social media is part of it. Yeah. Obviously, the proliferation of cable TV. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, talk radio, but I'd say social media is the main one now. I mean, social media is so true, and also the extremes in both parties, you know, and the fact that the congressional districts are drawn more and more gerrymandered to be either Republican or Democrat, so it's the more extreme that wins. And then they're the ones that run to social media, and then all of the reporters are on Twitter and they pick right. up the story, and everybody wants to scoop, and it just kind of becomes this spiral that just goes on and on. And you're right, you can't have that same kind of deal. But you know, the we don't like the idea of the smoke filled room where the deals are made. But in a way, that's sort of a way to get things done. Yeah, government has to function. And you're right, though, about the gerrymandering in that Basically, I would say even in a bad year for either party, 90% of incumbents and 95% are going to get reelected. What you have to worry about is your party's primary. And now I, I'm not in politics anymore, so I'm going to say this, but generally 10% of each party is either extreme or crazy. No how you want to look at I that. agree. Okay. And, and I can and say that too. And also in primary, you're lucky if 20% of the voters come out. I know. But you know that 10% is going to come out. So they have a disproportionate influence. I use the example of Eric Cantor, was probably the most conservative majority leader ever in the House of Representatives. And he was being groomed to be Speaker. He was thinking of being the first Jewish president. It was all lined up. It all I remember. Support. And he lost to an unknown in a primary all based on some amendment to an immigration bill three years before, which nobody even remembered. It meant almost nothing. It was taken out of context. And a lot of money went in behind his very right-wing opponent. And all they heard over and over was that uh, Eric Cantor had voted to allow illegal immigrants to storm America. And that was it. He lost. And Cantor was a very conservative guy. Yeah, he was conservative. So did his, did his, see, I remember that story, but then I don't know if the, if it was followed up. Did the guy win? The guy oh, who yeah, beat he him? won the general election because he, he was won. Republican. Having said that, yeah. but he did lose then in 2018. Hmm. So he was hmm. in for four years. But he lost. And again, Eric Cantor, if anything, was to the right of the average Republican in Congress. Yeah. But in that district, so it showed what money could do, focusing on, uh, you know, one one obscure issue, which was really, to- it was wrong also. It was a total distortion. Wow. But in the primary, which such again, a small number coming out, but all of those who were just anti-everything, they came out. So we have a bunch of primaries going on here in New York. We actually have two Democratic primaries. Week, it's too boring to get into why, but right. that's going to make it even harder. So it's, I think it's fracturing even the vote that we probably would get. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about Roe versus Wade and that overturn, and everybody has a feeling about it. I'm not going to, you know, we don't need to get into that. Right. Everyone else is talking about it. We don't need to get into that. But I will say, if you have a stake in the outcome of these kinds of decisions, it's so important to vote. Even in primaries, we've got two primaries going on here in New York, and you got to get out and let your voice be heard. That's much more effective than pretty much anything else you can do. Yeah, I have little patience with people who say, you know, it doesn't matter, it's all the same, we're getting screwed. Well, and then you find out the person didn't vote, or they right. have, certainly didn't vote in the primary, and they, ah, it doesn't matter who you vote for. It's, you know, well, that's, you can't say that. You Democracy, give up your right, you can complain all you want if you vote. And right. if you give up the right to complain if you stay home. Right. And, and I'm really, talking about all of the elections, local and primaries, national. School board, all of them. School board. Yeah, local level. Sanitation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting this year in the primaries in that, Again, there's really, well, you have three candidates on the Democratic side for governor, four on the Republican side, and it's generating some interest. Now, I would, there should be a large turnout. If there's not, then again, 
going to people, you know, next January, say, ah, it doesn't matter who's elected. You know, yeah. they're all the same. Who elected this this jerk? And who elected, wait a minute, did you vote? Uh, they- I actually feel, I mean, now that I'm not running for office and I'm, I'm sort of a relief not to have to be in that hamster wheel, I feel sorry for these candidates because they've got to raise all that money. They've got to be on these all these debates and press and dealing with all of the incoming. It's really hard to run for office. And then when you have, you know, 20% of the electorate showing up, right. it's just sort of insulting. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, and uh, I, you mentioned the debates. People want debates, but really, what they're doing is either the person asking the question or the opponent is looking for one word yeah. they can take out of context. Yes, I mean if you give a thirty or sixty second explanation and the course in the middle of that you say one thing which can be taken totally out of context, that's what it'll be. Yeah, and it's, exactly. Uh, yeah. Or you misspeak. That's what happens. Yeah. Uh, do you find, especially in these times of social media and those really, really stark divisions and so much anger, there seems to be a lot of anger mm-hmm. out there, that politicians will just take the path of least resistance and just knuckle under and maybe go against what they actually believe in their hearts. Yeah, I think that's certainly true in votes coming up before a primary or yeah. next season because a rule, again, we have all these rules in politics, unwritten rules. One is if you have to explain yourself, you've lost. Yes. And you can make the most sensible vote in the world, and then you were sort of in that position with the police vote right. in the summer of 2019, who's in track? 2021. Oh my God, sorry. 2021. And yeah, you were getting bashed on talk radio. Right. And the answer you got, I don't know if I would have agreed with your answer, but I certainly understood the logic. I mean, it was a certainly logical answer. Right. And I guess if you're in a, in a responsible position, you have to do the, do the responsible or, thing. Or the tax assessment issue. Like, once you have yeah. to talk about tax assessment, mm-hmm. you're, you've lost the argument. It's just an impossible thing to and talk about. And I found about. that anyone whose taxes have gone down felt they were entitled to it anyway. Anyone whose right. taxes go up and all that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because you would definitely have to get them. Yeah. Now, I see you as a politician that never, I never really saw you knuckle under. I always see you, you stood up for your district, you stood up for New York, you stood up for what you believed was right. And I really admire, you know, I admire the Kirsten Cinemas and the Lynn Cheneys of the world, the people who can go against their party, do what they think is right when it's the right thing. And I don't know if we have enough of that. No, I think if you did more of it, I mean, I'm not saying I was overly courageous, but I felt it was easier, and I'm even forgetting the morality or anything like that, or the conscience part of it. If you just say what you're going to do up front, then you can stick with that all the way. You don't have to be yes. constantly maneuvering. Yes. Say, yes. I told you I voted, and here's why I did it. But instead, if you're saying, well, I did, but I really didn't, I meant this, and all that. Or, it's so true. If you yeah. have to twist yourself into a pretzel for this audience and that audience, you lose track yeah. of what <laughs> you have to say. <laughs> And when you're a politician, you got to know what to say. You got to keep it easy for yourself. Well, you mentioned Kirsten Cinema. She is really a character. She was in the House and she was on the Financial Services Committee with me. And she is one of a kind. Kirsten is comes from all different directions. She's totally upfront, totally honest. Yeah. Nobody knew what she was going. To, and I don't mean that in a crazy way. She just was so eclectic in her views, and she didn't. They could do all the pressure in the world on her. The worst thing was one of the spending bills the Democrats had last year, and she was against it. And they really started harassing her followers. The ladies' room following down the street. Oh, I saw that. That it was, was the terrible. worst thing you could have done to her. She would never give in after that. Yeah, that would yeah. probably make her stick yeah, in even is, more. She was anyway. But you do need again. She's very thoughtful. She always made sense. But there was no pigeonhole. You, you could put. Uh, I first in. got to know her a little bit when Kathleen Rice years ago brought her to Long Island for an event, and she spoke. And I was like, "Who is yeah. this woman? She's fascinating, you know, very unusual." So, do people come to you for advice? You know, young people running for office. I'm sure a lot of people, you know, Long Island and elsewhere, say, "Hey, Pete, I need some help." 
Yeah, I'm still pretty active in the Republican Party. So some of the candidates, especially those running for Congress, but even those who want to get started, people who want to get, you know, join a local club or get involved in a local issue. Yeah, I, I get quite a bit. That's, it's, it makes you feel old, though, you know. Advice. That's what my father used to do, my grandfather. You right, know, you don't want to be the elder statesman. <laughs> but, yeah, and... What do you tell them? What's the biggest piece of advice you'd give to someone? First of all, that... It's, it's a long haul. I mean, unless you're a millionaire, unless your, your father was a governor or something, there's no guarantee. You could put in all sorts of work and never get nominated for anything. On the other hand, if you're working hard, first of all, it makes you feel better. And uh, if something does open up, you're there to take advantage of it. But, uh, I mean, I was, like, for instance, to give you an example, I, I moved to Seaford in 1971. Uh, and there was going to be an opening, a local opening for the Republican leader. And anyway, things like that. So it gave me, un- unknown to me, I just ended up in a good spot. If I had gone to Wantor instead, <clears throat> where Fred Perolo, who's the same age as me, had just become the leader, I would have been buried there. No reflection on Fred, but he was yeah. there and he was all set. So I would have been you know, behind the curve all the way. So that would, you know, it's some of the luck in that. It's, uh, you got to play the long Yeah. So, but if, again, if I was coming in as a millionaire, I could have maybe bought myself an nominee. Right. So, it's, so get in there. Don't expect it to happen. On the other hand, I think, as you know, political leaders are looking for people who have a certain amount of ability who are willing. So if you do work hard and you show some ability, odds are something is going to open up. But don't be over-anxious. Don't get upset if some person gets a nomination that you wanted to get. It'll, uh, if you stick at it long enough, odds are you're going to get it. And if not, you can still be active in the political system, which I think is very Yeah, exactly. you got to be you got to be in something, you know, whether it's starting with your local school board or civic association mm-hmm. or something. And also it helps get you acquainted with how things actually work. Yeah. Because I find a lot of people want to get involved, but there's so you've got to know things you've got to have a bit of a base you know you've got to have some credibility you have to have something you can point to look this is what I've done yeah I first really appreciated that or realized that when I went to Congress in 1992 which was a long time ago but even then it was so different from what I was used to there were so many people got elected with me had never been really involved in local politics had never gotten a petition signed never gone to a train station they basically had some money we had uh, there was one guy who was a multimillionaire, and this sounds old-fashioned now, but he sent out videotapes of himself to every registered Republican in the district to win the primary. I couldn't get over that. And these guys, and also they never had to deal, like, if you're from Nassau County, whether you're Democrat or Republican, anywhere you go, you're going to have somebody who disagrees with you. We are not monolithic in any area. Even take a heavy Republican area like Garden City, you're going to find Democrats. A heavy Democratic area like Plainview or Jericho, you're going to find Republicans, or you're going to find conservative Democrats. And they, many of these people come from really these monolithic districts, especially when it comes to race. I mean, the African-American districts are drawn basically mm-hmm. uh, for blacks. You have these, like down south, for instance, there's almost no district where there's any type of hmm. you know, mixing of the races at all coming together. So they've never dealt with somebody from not just another party, but another race. Mm-hmm. Another. Also, like here in New York, if you're a Republican, you're dealing with labor unions. Yes. In Washington, no Republican has ever, probably ever spoken to a labor leader. That's right. That's unheard of. Right. Uh, so there's this, we have this such eclectic group of people, good and bad. I mean, it can drive you crazy. Yeah. There's no way, there's no way to even running countywide, anyone's going to get a free ride, as you saw. I mean, you had a fight to get elected the first time. You lost a very close election yeah. the second time. That doesn't happen in most parts of the country. It's usually... Uh, 
Once you get a nomination, you're, you're home free. Yeah, we are not a monolith on Long Island, for sure, no. and especially in New York. I don't yeah. have to tell anyone that. I mean, your district had a vi- <clears throat> it was very diverse. Yeah. Nassau County, I, I got... But you know what I, what I loved about it is I made really great friends in the Orthodox Jewish community, mm-hmm. people I'm still friends with, people in the Muslim <clears throat> community, mm-hmm. black community, Hispanic community. I mean, you meet so many different people, and it really does open up your mind. Yeah. But I love that. I think I'm essentially an extrovert. I love talking to people. You could drop me, you know, with any group of people and I'll find something to discuss with them. Yeah, I don't mean this in a pandering way, but I love going to black churches. Oh, it's so fun. I probably lost 90% of the vote, but it didn't matter. First of all, they're extremely nice when you're in there. And there's such an energy that's there, you know. Yes. I I assume that goes back to the days when there was so much persecution of African-Americans. In one place, they could be at home. That's right. In their own church. No, it's great going to black churches. It's really uh, fun. Warm and Sons of Italy events. I mean. Yeah, those are fun. Yeah, it's really, uh, yeah. So you're still out there. When you turn on the TV, there you are. I know you're heading to a TV interview after this. You're on WABC a lot. You, I know you're also involved with Northwell Health. So you're doing a lot of different things. You are not bored. No, I'm active. I work with Northwell. I'm here at ABC. In fact, I'll be So we're rivals again because I'm on the board of Mount Sinai South Nassau, another hospital. Oh, boy. Okay, now we're coming after you. Okay, I know that. I hear about Mount Sinai when I'm at Northwell, okay? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's fighting all the time. That's right. And this podcast has turned into a fight before it's over. That's right. Fisticuffs ensue. Right. So one more thing that I wanted to bring up with you was... I didn't do it. You didn't do it. You didn't do it. You've got a beautiful family. I'm friends with your daughter, Erin, yes. who's just lovely. I have to say the best thing about not being in office is having time for the family. Yeah. And my daughter said something to me the other day, which was really quite striking. She said, you know, when you were home, you were never really totally home. And now right. when I look in your eyes, it's like you're back. You're here again. Yeah. Do you find that? You know, you've got grandchildren. You've got a yeah. wonderful wife, beautiful wife, Rosemary. Thank you. Yeah, because people don't realize that your job really is 24-7. And you're supposed to be available all the time. And even if nothing's happening, you're always thinking what could be happening or a few. Because uh, it's not a nine-to-five yeah. job. And so even if you've, you're back at home, you realize something has to be done tomorrow or next week. Also, you know that somebody's coming at you. Someone's going to criticize you. That's exactly right. Yeah. Even when you're... <clears throat> Home, there's still stuff brewing in the political world. Right. There's stuff operationally happening. There's a deadline looming. There's some criticism out there that you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of mental real estate. And I, you know, I said this on another podcast. I don't want people to feel sorry for elected officials, but it is just a reality of it. You're, it's very hard to be truly present with your family. Yeah, and what I found being out of politics now, there's nothing I have to do politically. Yes, and when or or in government, because uh, in many ways you know it overlaps. Obviously, is that now if there's a family event coming up, there's nothing to keep me away from it. Yeah, that's While right. When you're in office, no matter how important the family event is, sometimes you have to miss it because of whatever crisis there is. Certainly during COVID, you, I don't know, God, you yeah. never stopped. I was on a vacation with my family. We were in Yellowstone. There was a storm coming, so I left them in the park. I had to run home and deal with the storm. <laughs> and then, of course, when we got back, it just was a rainstorm. It didn't. It was supposed to be right. a hurricane, and it was a big nothing. But that's just that's also, just part of it. Also, I had a daughter who was always creating crises, too. Oh, that my gosh. A, she's great. Aaron, yeah. Yeah, she's wonderful. Well, <clears throat> Peter, I want to thank you so much. Oh, time went fast. Wow. I know. Time flies when you're having fun. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for joining me, and thanks for being a 
friend. Thank you, Laura. Uh, I see you around Long Island a lot. And next show, I'm actually going to be interviewing a Democrat who is running for Congress, Laura Gillen. So it's sort of the mirror image of you. So anyway, thanks again for joining. And I hope that you listeners appreciate this conversation. And I hope, you know, with this podcast, you see that I... Oh, I want to talk to Republicans. I want to t- talk to Democrats. I want to look at all sides of issues without an agenda. That's really what I want to accomplish here. And thanks for helping me do that, Pete. Great to be here. Thank you, Laura. All right. Take care.